As Lori reminded us, you have an Only God Can story as well, and we're looking forward to hearing it. We need you to share because we want to keep sharing these Only God stories. Uh, you can look online at our website, uh, eastpointchristian.com, and you can click on the Only God Can tab, and you can see the stories we've shared so far. Or you can look on our Only God Can wall right out here in the foyer, and we're putting them up there, and we need your picture and your story up there as well. So please reach out to us before we reach out to you or stick glory on you, either one. So. so if you could ask Jesus one question, what would you ask him? Uh, my guess is, is a lot of times it's a, it's a why kind of question. Why did this happen? Why did you do things this way? Uh, which is interesting because when we look in Scripture, the types of questions that we see Jesus being asked are generally more like, help Jesus, can you heal my son who's sick? Help, could you heal this leper? Help, could you help cast out this demon? But there's one question that is asked of Jesus that goes unanswered. On the night before Jesus is crucified, he is on trial with Pilate, Pontius Pilate. And in the middle of the questioning, Jesus gives an answer where he mentions the word truth. And Pilate asks Jesus this three-word question that haunts us even today. Pilate simply asks, what is truth? But Pilate doesn't stick around long enough for Jesus to answer. I would have loved to have heard Jesus' response to it. What is truth is a great question. And in our culture that seems to be proclaiming that truth is dead or that all truth is relative, we are a people who believe in absolute truth. In fact, in our vision, mission, and values that we've been going through the last several weeks, and we'll have two weeks after this week, uh, we, are, we have included devoted to truth as one of our core values. Let's walk through our vision, mission, and values so that we can continue to ingrain them in our minds. Our vision is, and say it with me, only God can. And we believe that these stories that we're hearing will help transform us into a people of deeper faith. And our mission, how we live out our vision, is compelled by compassion and called to unity. And we believe that as we are compelled by compassion, moved as the way that Jesus is moved, and as we are called together in unity, that we can live out that only God can mission. And then our core values, let's say these together, devoted to truth, daring to act, and developing one another. So what does it mean to be devoted to truth? In today's text, we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4, and we're going to take kind of a 30,000-foot view of this letter that, that Paul is writing to his young apprentice. This might be one of Paul's last pieces of written communication. It might be the last thing that Timothy ever heard from Paul. This is an important letter to young Timothy. And he spends time talking about truth in this letter. Here's what he says in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. In the New Testament, the last days are simply any time between the time that Jesus was on earth and the time that Jesus comes again. If someone asks you, do you think we're living in the last days? Say, of course we are. 
There you go. There you go. All right. So uh, there will be terrible times in the last days. And just check the box if you think that any of these sound like our culture today. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I love how they put that in there in the midst of all of it. Isn't that great? Disobedient to their parents, just in case you kids think you're getting off the hook ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brooders, not brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Any of those check the list for you in our culture today? Yeah, like can you just highlight the whole thing, right? And this isn't just our culture. This is pretty much every culture throughout the history of humanity. This is what happens with our sinful nature. We get inwardly focused. We get so focused on ourselves. It's like I have a, I have, I have a bird feeder about because we're getting old. And we have rocking chairs and bird feeders out behind our house. And, and the birds, I feed them religiously. Like every day I'm out there like filling up the bird feeders. And yet the birds, they still fight each other over the seed. Like, they, they should realize by now, the feeder has never been empty because they have a, a, a good birdseed filler in me that will fill their birdseed every day, but yet you don't see any birdies in there. Oh, let me make way for you, Mr. Cardinal. You go right ahead. The blue jay comes along and says, oh, Mr. Sparrow, come along. No, because it's part of their nature is to fight for themselves for everything they have. And the reality is, is that Christianity isn't about fighting for ourselves. Christianity is about dying to ourselves. So when we talk about being devoted to truth, the first thing we understand is that we accept that truth exists. We accept that this truth that exists and these things that are listed uh, in this list that Timothy gives are things that are wrong, that are part of our broken human nature that we need to fight to overcome. And not only does truth exist, but we don't get to be the ones who determine what it is. The reality is, is that in today's culture that we've grown accustomed to saying, well, that's, that's your truth or that's, that's my truth. No, I don't have a truth. God has a truth. And the sooner that we can wrap our minds around that, the better off we will be. And it's also understanding that this truth that exists is not subject to our interpretations or our culture. Now, I want to be very clear. It doesn't mean that I am always going to understand what truth is. There are a lot of people today who try to tell you that they know exactly, exactly everything that truth is. And I, I will simply say, well, I, I think I, I, I know God's Word and I'm growing in what truth is, but the idea that we have it all figured out is a pretty arrogant statement, isn't it? We accept that truth exists. Verse 10, you, however, know all about my teaching, and this is Paul speaking, of course, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We shouldn't be surprised when we have hardships in life. While evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Secondly, we are committed to living out God's truth. 
Paul recognized here that he was committed, like he, he needed to live out God's truth as opposed to living out the ways of this world. And as a result, Paul suffered for the sake of proclaiming the truth, and we should expect the same. We should expect that people will not just welcome the truth and say, oh, well, thank you very much for sharing the truth with me. That's not what's going to happen. Now, I want to be clear, Paul did not say here that we should suffer for being jerks about the truth. Because we've encountered those types of people too, haven't we? And if I'm honest, I've been that type of person before. Jesus, when He came, it talks about Him being full of grace and truth. We should recognize that the truth won't always be readily accepted. In fact, it might be rare that it is accepted. Uh, it's been said that cheaters never prosper. Cheaters may win, but they never prosper. I don't know who came up with that, but whoever said that apparently didn't study business or politics. The reality is, is that we see in this text here is that people get ahead by cheating in life. People get ahead by not telling the truth. And oftentimes, it never comes back to haunt them until after they're dead. Okay? And we need to expect that. We need to teach our children that, hey, like when you tell the truth, everything's not going to go your way. There are going to be people who don't like that, but we tell the truth because it's the right thing to do. And that is enough, and God will make it all right at the resurrection, and that is worth waiting for. And next with that, by being people of the truth, we recognize that our prosperity may be delayed all the way to the resurrection, and that's okay. So we are committed to living out God's truth. We accept truth exists. We are committed to living out God's truth. And then in verse 14, we see the next. But as for you, young Timothy, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know how those from you... Uh, <laughs> sorry, I, was, I took a break last week. Apparently, I didn't read last week. Because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy... You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. How from when? From infancy, from the time you were in the cradle, from the time you were still in diapers, from the time you couldn't even eat solid food. Church, do you understand the implications of what's being said here? That Timothy, this man of God who Paul was training to take his place in essence, that he had learned the Holy Scriptures from infancy. The idea here is that the world will be teaching your children from the time they are infants. YouTube will not take a break. Social media will not take a break. Cable TV or Netflix and the indoctrination that can come through those things will not take a break. So why should we take a break? We must be intentional from the get-go and in teaching our children the Holy Scriptures from infancy. We read later or, or earlier in the letter that, that Timothy's dad apparently wasn't really a follower of Jesus. And the people who were teaching Timothy were Timothy's mom and grandma. They were the ones instilling the Scriptures in him. And while I would, I would love to, you know, tell you um, that, that, that this was the perfect scenario or whatever else, the reality is, is that my life wasn't perfect growing up. My parents didn't go to church, but my grandma drugged me to church. 
And, and the reality is that some of you say, well, I'm a single parent home, or you know, we're really busy with all these other things going on. And, and the reality is, is that God works in our imperfect situations. If we are willing to say, God, I want to teach our kids the Holy Scriptures. If you are committed to that, God will work through our broken, feeble attempts. And it's a good thing, isn't it? You don't have to do it perfectly. I'm telling you, God will work through our mess. I don't think that Timothy's mom and grandma were teaching him the finer points of Leviticus. I think they were probably telling the greater stories of God's faithfulness. Of how God brought down the walls of Jericho. About how God saved Noah and his family through the ark. Those types of stories of God's faithfulness. And it continues on here. Verse 16. This is the verse that Dr. Pelletier made me memorize my freshman year of college, and I am thankful for it. It says, all Scripture. How much is Scripture? All of it. Do you know what that Greek word for all means there? It means all. Real complicated. All Scripture is God-written? No, no, no. no. All Scripture is God-written. Breathed. What else is God breathed? In Genesis 1 and 2, what do we see is God breathed? We are. That God literally, when He created us, He didn't just like, you know, like give, you know, give like, you know, give like the chest compressions. Apparently, He breathed into us too, right? He gave us the real CPR. Uh, yeah, like that, that's, that's the picture that we see of when God created us. He breathed into us. And it's saying that when God gave us His Word, this just wasn't something that like, He would like, write down on post-it notes. No, this is something that's living and active is what it says elsewhere in Scripture in the book of Hebrews about, about the Bible. It's living and active. It's sharper than any, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's God-breathed. This is something that is alive, church. And it says that it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Number three is that we see that we believe that God's Word is our source of truth. And this is so important for us to say, yes, there is a truth. And the truth isn't found in donkeys or elephants. The truth isn't found on your favorite news station or your favorite website. If you want real truth, go to God's Word. It will not fail you. We believe God's Word is our source for truth. And then finally here in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1-5, through 5, Timothy isn't just left with, oh, well, here's this information, but Paul gives him a charge. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. We don't often think of correct, rebuke, and encourage with those words, with great patience and careful instruction, but this is the heart of someone who's a Christ follower. It's not about forcing truth on people, but it's about lovingly conveying truth and helping them to reconcile their lives to Christ. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Yeah, we're there. 
Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, and do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Finally, what we see here is that we are commissioned to proclaim God's truth. Did you know that nowhere in Scripture are you commanded to proclaim the supposed truths of your political party? Did you know that nowhere in Scripture are you commanded to defend the truths that you think are in our culture or aren't in our culture? What we are commanded to do is to proclaim God's truth. This is something we are to do. And I am not calling us for us to be Um, so far apart from politics or anything else. But the reality is, is that we don't believe that the kingdoms of this world are what give us hope. We believe it is God's kingdom who gives us hope. We believe that it's God's kingdom that will exist for all eternity. And that should call us to a deeper devotion to sharing God's truth. And I think it also, it also calls us to help us to understand that we need to be very careful about what we're calling truth and not calling truth in our culture. Because if people see us proclaiming God's Word, but then holding up political affiliations at the same level of God's Word, then they will be utterly confused by it. God's Word, God's truth is what we're about at East Point. That is what is most essential because at the end of the day, it is God's truth that will last. It is God's truth that will endure. It is God's truth that is worth giving our lives to. And if the other things that we, that we are talking about, that the other things that we are sharing are becoming divisive, especially with different generations, then we need to seriously check what kind of hold they have in our lives. Because one of the greatest tra- the dangers to sharing and living God's absolute truth is not the complete opposite of truth, but half-truths. And our culture is full of half-truths today. We must be people of God's truth. And we must be committed to proclaim that. Here's what it comes down to, and I I believe this um, more and more every day, is this, is that truth is only transformative in relationship. Let me explain that a little bit. You might not have heard that before. But I've heard of people who literally like they found a Bible and they picked it up and they started to read it and it like it like transformed their lives and like they never knew a Christian before or anything else. And that those are amazing stories. But 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 those are the exception, not the norm. Right. The reality is, is that when truth is transformative, most transformative is when it is in relationship, is when you see it lived out in somebody else's life. You read it and and you say yes, and then you look at somebody's life and you say their life lines up with this, not because they're perfect, but because they're growing in Christ. And if, and if we are going to make a difference in our culture, it's, it's not merely about giving everyone a copy of the Bible, but it's about investing in people's lives and letting them know that they are loved by a God who holds the truth, by a God who is the truth. Truth is only transformative in relationship. Fuller Youth Institute out of California 
the Christian, Christian university, um, they, they started to become more and more concerned about kids who went away to college and lost their faith. And so they started to look into it. What is it that makes, uh, creates a sticky faith? A faith that sticks. In other words, like when they go away to college, they don't lose their faith. Instead, their faith flourishes and thrives. And when they come out of college, they're not disconnected from the church. The number one thing, there's four things that they found. I'll share each of them with you. But the number one thing that they found is that students would have a sticky faith if they had intergenerational relationships at a five to one ratio or greater. That means that they had five adults who walked along with them, who invested in them, who they could turn to. I'm going to tell you a great mystery right now, and I think 100% of you will agree with me. Teenagers are tough for parents to get along with. Would you agree with that? And that's right when they're sorting things out. And I know that I was tough to get along with my parents as well. But the reality is, is I had, I had a lot more than five. I was extremely blessed to have probably 20 or 30 people that just poured into me. But we have a lot of people in our culture that don't have anybody pouring into them. And so what I want to tell you is that truth is only transformative in relationship. Is, is that intergenerational relationships, we've got to have them. It's your responsibility when you see kids, when you see young people in the faith, to encourage them. Don't just talk to people your own age. Encourage them. As young people love to have people take notice of them and interest in them. And let me just say this as well. I think that if this is true, and I believe it's 100% true, that we have to have those intergenerational relationships, then I think that we should have a waiting list of volunteers for our children's and youth ministry. Because people realize that the most influential thing they can do in their life is to pour into a young person. And we ought to have people like fighting, like not physically fighting, but, but we ought to have people fighting over the open positions. I want to serve this week because I want to tell that Bible story to that kid. I want to invest in those kids. I want to help them to see the image of God that's in them. I got an amen from the children's minister. Secondly, uh, from the sticky faith, um, there's a whole gospel focus. Not just right or wrongs, but this is about the story of Jesus. This is about recognizing this whole gospel focus. It's not just about our political agenda, but it's about all the things Scripture talks about. Third, it's a partnership with families. There's 168 hours in the week, every week, except for like those crazy time change days that we're going to have another one in a few weeks, all right? 168 hours every week. Do you know how many uh, you get to spend in church? One, maybe two or three tops. What you do at home is going to be far more important than what any youth minister does. Yeah. What you don't do at home <laughs> will also be noticed. And while I had youth ministers invest in me, and we've got a great youth minister and Andre, at the end of the day, what you do as a parent, is going to make the biggest difference. And final, number four, uh, what creates a sticky faith is a safe place to doubt. Where children know, where kids know, students know, that they can have doubts and yet still be loved. At the end of the day, while I hope that no student ever walks away from the faith, the reality is, is they need a place to know that even if they do walk away, that they will always be welcomed back with open arms. This past week when I was back in Nebraska, 
in sub-zero temperatures. It was negative 26 one day. That's why I'm wearing a t-shirt today, because this is balmy. I was helping my in-laws move. I decided to stop by the junior high and to see a student that I had mentored for the past five years, just once a week, about a half hour to an hour tops is what I got to spend with him, only during the school year. I can't tell you much about him because of the privacy of the mentoring program, but I can tell you that, that when he saw me, um, he just absolutely lit up, um, and he said, I, I thought I'd never see you again. We still Zoom every week. The school allows me to do that. And so I brought him uh, some of our favorite Nebraska restaurant. Runza is the name of it. Um, and it, it's actually really good. It doesn't give you the Runzas, but it's weirdly named. Um, but, but when he saw me and then he saw the food, he said, I'm saving this cup forever. Which he ended up throwing away by the end of the meal. But, you know, I decided I was going to save mine to remind me of him and Runza because that's pretty good. But while we were sitting there, and he started reminiscing about things um, and talking about where, how long we had been walking together in life, which for an eighth grader, five years is a significant period of time, and some of the challenges that he had been through. And uh, he made a few statements where he said, that was before I had you, and now I know better. As he was just reminiscing through some of these things, I was just really taken aback and um, my favorite thing that he said um, was um, he, he got in a, in, in a fight with a kid at school, and he said, before I met you, I would have wailed all over him and punched his face in, but since I met you, I only cussed him out. <laughs> yeah, 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 we're getting there, we're getting there. <laughs> but the funny thing is, is um, in the five years that I, I had been meeting with him, um, I don't remember giving him any bits of wisdom as much as just bringing games in to play with them. When he was younger, I'd bring trains in, and we'd set up the whole cafeteria, set up bridges, and we just had a blast. But there were other times, especially since he's been in junior high, where if I'm honest, most of the times I walked into school questioning if I was even doing anything at all. Um, and I walked out of there with those same questions, wondering, is this really helping? He seems to have a lot of other interests and he seemed to be pretty happy to get rid of me to get with his friends. But the reality is, as I was driving on the long drive back from Nebraska, um, I realized the beauty of the whole deal is not in any magical things that I said. The beauty of the deal is that all I did was show up. And that's all he really needed was for me to be someone one person in his life who showed up and who he knew would be there every Tuesday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I want to encourage you with that today because the gospel doesn't start with the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel starts with Jesus simply showing up and getting his toes in the same dirt that you and I walked in. Walking alongside the woman at the well, reaching out and touching the leper. The gospel starts with Jesus just showing up. And then it goes to the cross. Where do you need to show up? Who is it that needs you to simply start showing up.
I suppose we should start with an, stop with an answer to Pilate's question. What is truth? It's ironic because Pilate's question would have been very different if he simply would have changed his question to who is truth. Because just a few chapters earlier in John, Jesus made the proclamation, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 1, John said in the beginning, speaking of Jesus, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The reality is, is that God did not merely give us a book. He gave him, he gave us himself. He is the living word, and he gave us the written word. Church, truth is not dead. Truth is alive. And he has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. Father, we come to you as your, as your broken vessels, yet you have invested so much in us. You gave us your Son. Lord, thank you for not just writing us a book, but giving us your Son, showing us the way of life. And Lord, I thank you for the truth bearers that you have placed here before us today. Those who are, those who are committed to investing in the next generation those who are committed to living out truth and grace just as you did, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, work in our hearts and in our minds. Lay upon us people that you know that we need to invest in. People that we need to show up. May we know that truth isn't about what we share on social media as much as it is about who we invest in, who we love. May they see the truth in us. May they see Jesus in us because we are so convinced of the truth that you loved us, that you gave your life for us and for the whole world. And so we can lay down our lives for you as well. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.